This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Let me read to you something uh, that I received a couple of weeks ago. And it has to do with the Mormons, actually. And because he brought it up, I'm going to read it. I didn't think I would start this way, but let me do that. Um, and th- uh, let me lay the context. So there's a bunch of people that are speaking about the, the ten spheres of culture and influence. All right? And um, education, politics, business, uh, you have family, you have um, mass media, and then so on and so forth. And then they added military, technology, and sport. So those are the ten spheres of culture. And, and so this, this researcher was asking himself, who has been effective in, in essentially taking over a whole of a sphere and dictate the culture? And so this particular person, uh, actually there's a bunch of people that study this, but they studied in particular the LGBTQI forum, the Mormons, and the Muslims, okay? And here's an excerpt from the research related to the Mormons. In the U.S. day, 70%, well, evangelicals, uh, meaning Christians, even 70, uh, evangelicals lose 70% of their young people between the ages of 18 and 22. How many of you are 18 to 22? How many outside of this hall are 18 to 22? (laughs) Where are they? Okay. So 70% in the US, 18 to 22, they fall away from the church. Uh, Some return to the faith after they have a family, but the loss is staggering. And then he goes on. On the contrary, the Mormons lose 7% between 18 and 22. The question is why? All right. Uh, same country, same young people, same schools. The assertion is that they have managed to develop a better plan for education. So whatever Sears just said, you know, um, the training that is required in order for you to be engaged, and, and it's true, they do give a year of their lives into missions. So all the guys that wear the black tie and the white shirt and the black pants, and the leather shoes that walk around everywhere in every country of the world, those are the Mormons. I think of the number. Is it 700,000 a year or something like that? I need to check it out. Okay? So I affirm that invitation, that faith goal. It's critical. Uh, that, and, and the point is not a year. The point is, are you willing to give it all up? That's the point. Okay? could be a year, could be a month, could be the rest of your life, and hopefully it's the rest of your life. <laughs> okay, let me try and mess things up a bit. Um, create a bit of chaos. Can I invite you to stand up and try to pick up your chair with two hands? Yeah, easy, right? Two hands, two hands. Okay, everybody, your own chair. Good. Now, 
do it with one hand. One hand. Pick up your chair with one hand. Very good, very good. Now try to pick up your chair with one finger. Not too hard, okay. Now I would like for you to sit on the chair. No, sorry. I would like for you to find a partner. Your partner sits on the chair and you try to pick it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <clears throat> All right. Hold, 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 hold. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> okay, let me stop you there. Don't try anymore. Just wait, wait, wait. Stay where you are. I did this once in a country and the, and, and the furniture broke and the person really hurt themselves. So I'm really afraid now. So let me, let me say to you, one person on the chair and six people around that person with your mask on. And I want you to use two fingers to lift the chair together. Okay? Find, find someone who is not pregnant. Find someone who is healthy. Two fingers. <laughs> okay, great. Have you succeeded? Come, let's try. <laughs> Good. Have a seat. Okay, this is pretty obvious, yeah, what I want you to take away. But I'd love for you to turn to a friend, so parents share one thing that you learned from this simple exercise. One thing that you learned from this simple exercise. Don't say stuff about you're too heavy, you need to lose weight, you know, not, not that kind of feedback. One thing you learned. <laughs> Okay, let's get a couple of uh, responses. Share what your partner said. One thing they learned. Anything interesting? Teamwork, okay, what else? Sorry? Can't do it alone, okay? Is that Yes, there's more than meets the eye. <laughs> Robots in disguise. <laughs> I also watch Transformers. <laughs> uh, okay, what else? <laughs> Not only Marvel, but also Transformers. <laughs> I love the science fiction stuff. Um, read Isaac Asimov. Really read his books. Uh, in the 60s, 70s, and he came up with the four laws of how you deal with AI. Okay? So really fascinating when we enter this whole world of AI today. Okay, so for those who 
didn't understand the word, ignore, okay? <laughs> For those who did, <laughs> great. Um, yeah, I want, to, I want to introduce to you a quick concept, and then I'm going to only focus on one, okay? Uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, I preached at the 5 o'clock service, and I said, hey, there's a difference between restraint, constraint, and pursuit. Restraint and constraint are defensive strategies. Pursuit is offensive, okay? So restraint, let's use pornography, since all the men here struggle with pornography, yeah? Even the pastors. <laughs> so, restraint. When, when, um, when, like Joseph, when Potiphar's wife throws himself at you, what do you do? Throws herself at you, what do you do? Restraint. Restraint means hold back. Don't give in, okay? Use your will and say, no, 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 no. Okay, but we know no, no, no is not good enough. You also got to flee, which he did, right? So restraint is oftentimes an exercise of your will. Hold yourself back, discipline. And so we talk a lot about that, I think. Discipline yourself against greed, against this, against that. Uh, so that's restraint. What is constraint? Constraint related to uh, sexuality and pornography in particular is don't even allow it to become a problem by removing it from you. Meaning, put yourself where there is, you know, there is a wall around you and even if you wanted to, you can't go there. Example, you give away the password to your app store, to your wife, your fiancé. So before you install anything you shouldn't, you need a permission. That's constraint. Correct? Don't go into situations where you will be tempted. That's constraint. So you don't enter into a situation where you have to now exercise your willpower or restraint. That is constraint. You see the difference? Okay? So same thing with greed. Same, uh, which is partly why um, I know a particular family, every single year, my family included, we try to go to a place where our kids and ourselves are completely out of our comfort zone, like India. We've never been, my family has not been to India, but <laughs> India is a great place to go to, or Malawi. Because you go there, I mean, uh, Kuyasa in Kaimandi, they, took, they have a leadership program in uh, Kuyasa, okay, uh, in Kaimandi. It's a non-profit. And they have a leadership program called Hats and Glasses. And so a couple of years ago and every year since, they take the youth of Kaimandi to Swaziland to serve on missions. And the youth of Kaimandi go there. You know what they come back with? Oh my goodness, we are rich. <laughs> Oh my goodness, why are we complaining? How dare we complain? Right? Perspective change. So, so um, going, you know, going to places, getting new experiences. So, so constrain yourself. Okay, those are all defensive. But there's another one which is offensive, which is the pursuit, which is fill your mind with. So you're not trying to always only defend yourself against sin, not a posture of defensiveness, but now you're trying to fill your mind with, okay? Occupy yourself with, chase after God. 20 years ago, there was this book by Tommy Tenney, right? The God Chases, uh, too old for most of you. But that book was pretty phenomenal because it's, it swapped the whole paradigm of, um, you know, wait for God to come. Yes, be still, 
be still. God is present. Um, but it's not a posture of waiting is important. But I think what he was trying to help us see was intimacy with God can be pursued. The pursuit of God. Okay? And, and so I want to introduce this concept to you. What, what are the things that you can proactively do, not only reactively respond to? Fair? Okay? So that's more or less the orientation for tonight. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 15 to 22. Let me read this. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. So you read of one giant and a giant killer. Then they... Um, where is it? Okay, 17b. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. Verse 18. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At the time, Sebekai the Hushetite killed Saf, one of the descendants of Rapha. Second giant, second giant killer. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanan son of Jer, the Bethlehemite killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He also was descended from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. Okay, there's a cross-reference to this passage in 2 Samuel, and you can read this also in 1 Chronicles 20, verses 4 to 8. Okay, so, a couple of thoughts. Uh, in verse 15, we see that David, well, first observation, David also killed Goliath, right? David was a giant killer. David was a Goliath killer. Um, and despite this, in spite of this, verse 15 tells us that he became tired. So we can't, even giant killers can't do it themselves. Not even Sias can save the world alone. All right? Especially not Sias. <laughs> Correct? Because we are weak. We are weak. And then it's also interesting, if you read verse 17, his team, David's team, he's got mighty men, 30 mighty men, and a couple of hundred actually, but he's got these 30, and he's got a captain of the 30, and, and his team actually says to him, they tell him what to do. What do they tell him what to do? They, they tell him, never again will you go out with us, verse 17, to battle so that the lamp of Israel will not extinguish. I'm sure David didn't really like that a lot. What do you think what do you think David's profile was on the DISC or the MBTI? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Mercy. I don't know actually. I'm, it was a rhetorical question. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's an answer. I just can't tell you the answer now. Um, but probably 
you know, they sang about him, right? They sang about him. Saul killed the hundreds and David killed the thousands. Or Saul killed the thousands and David the tens of thousands. So David was a real warrior. And now his team in verse 17 tells him, you, you don't go to battle. Maybe you just stay back because you've got a different role now. Play that role. And then in verse 16 to 22, we read about uh, the, the four battles. Okay, so let me go into each of them quite quickly, and then I will take us to what I hope we can draw out of this passage. So we read about a guy called Ishbi Benob, and he carries and he carried a, a bronze spearhead made of brass, and it's 300 shekels. So what is 300 shekels in kilograms? So you will read that people estimate it to be between 2.7 kilograms to 3.5 kilograms. That's what the spearhead weighed. Now, Goliath that David killed, his spearhead was 600 shekels. About 7 to 8 kilograms. Okay? That was Goliath. Goliath was a monster. <laughs> he, he was probably between 10 to 12 feet tall. That was Goliath that David killed. This guy wasn't small. He was still pretty big, decent. Um, and, uh, and, and it is said that, you know, you read here that he, don't worry about the reading, sorry. George actually told me not to put fonts that are this small. But it's, it's less about the content, it's more about the fact that I did the research and I'm going to read you the research <laughs> and I'll send you the slides, okay? <laughs> so, so I'm just a bit more believable. <laughs> um, but... You will read in verse 16 that he had a bronze spearhead and he was armed with a new sword. Some translations say armor. Some translations, if you go back, they even say maybe it's not armor or sword, it's girdle, it's a belt. So it's not a belt to hold his, his pants up or his clothes up. It's actually signifying rank. It's like a medal. So to say this, this giant was, was pretty hectic, okay? And so he wore this into battle with his massive spear to intimidate. And now we read of um, Abishai. Abishai was Joab's brother. Abishai himself had killed 300 men before, and he was captain of David's mighty men, okay? Then the second guy we read of is called Saf. And we don't hear much about what he's armed with or not. And, and we read of Sebekai, who also kills him. Uh, it's interesting, if you, if you research this a bit more, there are people that have tried to tie in these four giants, their names, and then the four giant killers and their names, and you know, um, try to connect this with Daniel 7 and the prophetic and you know what these four rep four giants represent today and the four giant killers represent today da, 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 da. that's a whole nother layer of interpretation of this narrative but i i don't i don't want to go there i think all i want to say is there were four big guys and four really great guys who killed the big guys okay that's basically the point um Lahmi, the brother of goliath had a shaft thick like a weaver's rod and um here they don't mention the spearhead and some commentators explain why you know they think you know maybe there was a spearhead maybe there wasn't 
but maybe this guy, the weaver's rod, is still a battle. Uh, it's still a weapon, um, and it's a weapon for close combat. So it could have been used to entice somebody to come closer, but at the same time, it was still a very dangerous weapon. Okay? So there are ways you can interpret this. Uh, was it unperceived by the, the author? Was it insignificant? We don't know. So too much that we don't know of. And then the killer was Elhanan, son of Jer. And then the fourth giant we read of doesn't have a name. He was a nameless, huge man. That's all we know. Okay? What we do know is he had six fingers on, his, on each hand, and he had six toes on each hand. Um, and he was killed by Jonathan, son of Shimea. I once knew a friend who did have six fingers on one hand, but five on the other. Does anybody know anyone with more than five fingers and five toes? Yeah, some? Yeah, yeah. Uh, also a really scary guy, according to you know, the Jewish encyclopedia, if you research on each of the, each of the giants. Okay, so why did I choose such a convoluted passage to share with you? <laughs> uh, I think one is a personal reason. I find the tendency is I want to preach from the New Testament because it's analytical and clean and easy and very statement-oriented, right? Very factual. Um, well, it's easier to, to preach from. I'm trying to preach more from the Old Testament for myself, actually, to force myself to study it better, to study, study it more better. And also, you know, it's, it's something I don't think we do too much. We just draw verses maybe, but we don't use whole narratives. So partly it's a personal reason. But the other is, is I think this is a great story to illustrate the game that we play. David was a mighty man of God. He was a Goliath killer. Interestingly, the people that hung around with him also became giant killers. Right? There's a board game you can buy in Kumbuks. I could have told that story, but I decided not to. I decided to use this passage instead. The board game is called Turkeys and Eagles. Have you heard of the board game? Right? So if you hang out with turkeys, you probably become a turkey and believe you are a turkey, whereas you are an eagle. That is who God says you are. Right? His son, co-heir to his kingdom, filled with his power and the spirit, comforted. You are more than conquerors, etc., etc., etc. That's who you are. So you are an eagle, not a turkey. So life is hard. Period. Whose life is easy? Anyone's life easy? Oh, you put up your hand. No, you didn't put up your hand. <laughs> no, life is hard. Life is hard. So the question we have, the question I have for you is, will you try to go it alone or with other people? So you have to make that choice. Do it alone or do it with other people. And do it do it with other people doesn't mean you outsource, you get contractors, you know, you, you, you commission work to other people. And, and you might say, no, you know, I do it with many people, but actually they're your domestic worker or they are your subordinates or they are paid by you or uh, what's the difference? The difference is there's no intimacy. 
The difference is you, you keep them at arm's length or further. So are you going to let people in or not is the question. Are you going to carry that chair with that weight alone or will you do it with others? Now, in our head, we all will conclude we'll do it with others. But in our heart, what will you conclude? And if we ask the people around you, do you let people in or do you keep people away? How would they respond? Are you an individualist or are you a communalist? Are you a team player or are you a superhero <laughs> trying to save the world yourself? Good reasons or bad reasons? I don't know what the reasons are. But which one are you? There are advantages in doing it alone. Definitely. What are some of the advantages of going alone? It's faster. No drag. Right? We always talk about, oh, that guy's a drag. Why? It's, it's like that car trying to slow down or the, that space shuttle dropping from the sky. You've got to parachute, create drag. Okay? So, yeah. It's faster, less drag. What else? Less painful. Maybe we tell ourselves it's also cheaper. Right? Less drag means more streamlined. More streamlined means, you know, cheaper, <laughs> less friction. What else? What are the advantages of going alone? More time for yourself. Yeah? Hmm? More control. That's an important one. More control. Okay. What are the downsides of going alone? Huh? Loneliness. That's a killer, huh? Loneliness. Yes. That's why you need porn. So, sorry, no. <laughs> That's why you go into porn. You're trying to drown, escape your loneliness. Okay, what else? It's painful, it's lonely. People are painful, huh? There's a book written 30, 40 years ago called Dancing with Porcupines. And essentially, the book is like the, the one you do in marriage and uh, marriage enrichment with the trees. It's, it's a psychometric um, uh, it's a book on, on personality or temperament profiles. And it just said, look, dancing with porcupines. People are like porcupines. What else is the downside of going alone? Conflict. Yeah. If you're bipolar, you can have conflict with yourself. So <laughs> conflict happens anyway. <laughs> right. Conflict. Co but conflict is a major issue. Uh, Always, has been, always will be, all right? Conflict's a good one. What else? Hmm? No guidance. You try to figure out life by yourself. Okay, what are the advantages of going together? Accountability, caring, relationships, what else? Huh? Capacity, yes. Yep, yep, yep. More fun. You are an optimist. I like you. <laughs> yes. What else? Diversity. So important. Perspective. Okay, what are the downsides of going together? Hmm? Conflict. What do you say? 
Conflict, okay. Conflict, conflict, conflict. Okay, okay, I get the point. All right, good. What else? <laughs> Downsides. It takes time. It's slower. Yeah. Coming to consensus is always slower. Getting everybody on the same page is always slower. So, life is hard, period. Go alone or go together. You've got to choose. Both are hard. Right? There was this meme a couple of months ago. Choose your heart. Choose your heart. Going alone is hard. There are pros and cons. Going together, also hard. So choose your heart. Now, if you subscribe, no, more than subscribe, if you are surrendered to the biblical worldview, then you can't go alone. Okay? So actually, you only have one choice. Go together. Because <laughs> God is triune. The church is a community. The church is together. Jesus came and he had 12 around him together. When he commissioned us in Matthew 10, it was two by two. When he established the church, he, well, Paul talked about the fact that we are all parts of one body. So everything about the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview is together, not alone. So it's hard. marriage. Thank you for showing it to me, Martinique. <laughs> marriage is also together. Okay? So there is very, there, there is even the fivefold gifts in Ephesians 4. You know? Apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. It's also together to lead the church. So Alone is, unfortunately, if you buy into the biblical worldview, if you surrender to the biblical worldview, you have to figure out what going together will look like for you and I. Okay? So I'm going to share with you a framework of what I will suggest to you is a way that we can go together. And there are many, many frameworks, okay? But just, this is just one of them. Um, uh, let me show you a, a slide. You've heard me say this before. You are the, uh, actually, it's a guy called Jim Rohn who said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Okay? So this makes you the turkey or the eagle. This makes you either the giant killer or the opposite of giant killer, whatever that might be. Now, here's the next step of this. I researched this a little further and I found studies that say this is false. This statement is, is accurate but not actually fully accurate. Okay, so go to the next slide. Uh, Nicholas Christakis, James Fowler, two researchers, they went to a study called the Framington Heart Study. And this study was basically to study heart disease and the implications of certain lifestyles and heart disease and the correlation, okay? But what they realized was that this study was super extensive. It was conducted over 30 years, by the way. So they managed to gather a lot of data. And then they went back to this data and they said, what can we learn from this study over 30 years related to obesity? And here is what they found. 
If your friend becomes obese, you are yourself 45% more likely to gain weight over the next two, four years. So look at your friend now and say, you are the reason why I'm also <laughs> a little chubby. Yeah? Or, yeah. <clears throat> now, if a friend of your friend, okay? So if your friend is chubby, 45%. If your friend's friend becomes obese, the likelihood of you gaining weight is 20%, even if you don't know the friend of the friend. If the friend of the friend of your friend develops obesity, you are still 10% more likely to become obese yourself. Okay. Are you guys scared now? <laughs> Next slide. Same study, they looked at smoking. If your friend smokes, you're 61% more likely to be a smoker yourself. If a friend of your friend smokes, 29% more likely. If a friend of the friend of your friend, the likelihood is 11%. Next slide. If your friend, if the friend of a friend of a friend is happy with their life, then you have a 6% greater likelihood of being happy yourself. Now, in italics, you might think 6% is not much. But what the researcher said was, if I gave you a 10,000 US dollar pay rise, you would only be happier by 2%. So they were trying to infer that 6% is not a, uh, it's, 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 it's quite a lot of money in that sense of happiness. It's worth quite a lot in terms of financial happiness. Okay. I hope I've, re I've emphasized strongly enough that who you are with can shape you in a significant way. So choose the giant killers that you want to hang around with. Okay, now we go to the model. Okay, so this diagram, some of you are familiar with this. I've got two or three friends that will share something on this after I've unpacked this further. Right in the center of the circle is you. You are a whole person, okay? Holistic person. So there is the spiritual, emotional, physical, social, environmental, intellectual. And when you speak about growth, we're always looking at all aspects of that person growing. And so discipleship is looking at the whole person growing to be more like Jesus in every facet of his life. So it's not just what you do from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. on a Sunday and then, you know, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on a Wednesday night. It's every aspect of your life being like Jesus, surrendered to Jesus. Not good enough just to, you know, you've heard me say there's a difference between wrong and right and there's a difference between right and kingdom. There's a difference between ex being exploitative and ethical and redemptive. There's a difference between exploitative, ethical, and redemptive. Be redemptive. Okay? Be kingdom, not just be right. Right is not good enough. Okay? So here are the six, uh, here are the nine roles around the table of your life. And the nine people. Uh, six, seven, eight, yeah, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, there are ten there. The nine or ten roles around that table are to help you to be more like Jesus. So you have, um, let's start, let's start on the, 
um, upper left, validator. So essentially, if you're a leader today of a church, a ministry, a business, um, or you have something that you started, a non-profit, so the validator essentially is your successor. Another word is successor. Who will you hand this over to? Okay? Because we don't live forever. Family. Who in your family do you have the highest level of intimacy with where you can share transparently about how you think, how you feel, what you struggle with, and even your joys and your successes? That's family. Trainee, okay, I'll skip trainee for now. Uh, let me go to mentor. Mentor would be somebody that is mentoring you in your whole life. Um, let's use that word interchangeably with discipler for now. Mentor, discipler, let's say it's the same thing. Uh, there are nuances, but I won't un unpack this now. But let's say the mentor helps you with your whole life. He's the person that is discipling you and pulling you to be more like Jesus. What's the coach? The coach is helping you with something skill-specific to help you develop consistency in that skill. So a fundraising coach, a sports coach, a public speaking coach, an entrepreneurship coach, etc., etc. Okay? So they're helping you in a specific aspect. The mentor, discipler would help you in your whole person to be more like Jesus. Uh, lower right would be the mentee. So your mentor, discipler pulls you to holiness. Your mentee and disciple pushes you to holiness by asking you tough questions. Questions like, what do you do when, what do I do when all my friends around me are drinking themselves silly? And they make fun of me when I do not join them. Or they have names for me that are less than flattering. What do you do? What did you do when you were my age and you were in that situation? What do you do when people are saying, you will only get this deal if you grease my palms? How did you handle this? Can you see how a mentee pushes you? Because now you're forced to, from your own life or from your own repentance, help them. So that's the mentee. Then you've got the inner circle. Inner circle would be your peers that are closest to you, your friends, you know, your buddies, um, where you can be fully transparent about, about you know, the real you, in a sense. You don't, you don't wear your mask when you're with them. Hopefully. <laughs> then you've got your counterculture or cross-culture friend. I, I prefer to use cross-culture, especially if you're in South Africa and you are Afrikaans. Who do you know that is not Afrikaans? If you are Zulu, who do you know that's not Zulu? And I, I don't mean no as in, hi, bye, you're my Facebook friend or Instagram friend. I mean, when you bri, you think about inviting them all the time. Who do you bri with? Maybe is a good question. In your context anyway, in South Africa. Who do you bri with? You know? <laughs> when you go to the taxi rank and you do your mbengu, <laughs> who do you bri with? Uh, counterculture friend or your cross-cultural friend. Your hero is preferably someone that's dead, but someone that you look up to, you know, from a distance. Okay? And let me tell you why. Because, because if the person is alive, there is a chance that they could fall away in their walk with God. 
like we know of this guy in the US that recently was a big, big, big scandal. We all looked up to him. And, uh, and then things emerge about his private life. So, um, so it's probably safer to pick a hero that is already dead. Okay? Yeah. Hmm. Or you hold very loosely to that hero, you know? Yeah, okay, because we're all f failed humans. Okay, any questions about the table? About the roles on the table? So, any questions? Let me just pen. Yes. I have no idea why. <laughs> Essentially, it's not the number. It's, it's not the number of people per se. It's, that it's whether the roles are filled. Okay? So I think it's just to create some symmetry. Um, <laughs> honestly. Because <laughs> I didn't design this. Um, but, but the inner circle, you know, women will have more. Men will have less, probably. Okay? Okay, great question. Thank you. It's, so I did remember correctly, it was nine, not ten. Uh, let's keep panning. Any other questions? Yes. Yes, can one person be more than, uh, can, can be on more than one seat? Yes, yes. There can, it can be true, but we would say it's very dangerous. So some people would say, you know, my wife is my validator, my family. She's also my coach in certain areas. She's my mentor and my mentee. She's my inner circle. And you know what? Thankfully, she's also colored. So, you know, she's my cross-cultural friend. And, and I, I worship her. You know, I worship her. She's great. So you, you see how quickly we can find back doors or, or escape routes from being accountable? All the stuff of growing together. Yeah, so we would say that, you know, the Bible says there's wisdom in the counsel of many. So this is essentially forcing us to think much more specifically about the roles people play in our lives because each of them see different things in our life that they can affirm and confront, both. Okay, I'll keep going. Yes. The roles won't change. The people in those roles might. Yes, yes. They could change. Um, they could change. For example, when I moved here 14 years ago, I've got two mentors that one is in Singapore, one is in Malaysia. I see the guy in Singapore once every five, maybe in the past 14 years, I've seen him once physically. Um, the guy in Malaysia, I've seen half a dozen times, maybe, you know. And there are others that I see every single month. That's on mentors. So, so proximity changes. I think frequency of contact changes. Um, yes, so you're right. People can change their, uh, you know, yeah, I've, I think I've answered your question. Yes. Keep going. Yes. But, good question. Validator and trainee. Um, Validator, basically successor. Who do you hand everything to? Trainee, uh, you know, I wouldn't have put trainee there 
but trainee is somebody that you're providing skills and knowledge transfer. So I think it makes more sense for somebody perhaps in my role because I, I do a lot of training and I distinguish very clearly between training, coaching and discipling or mentoring. Training, knowledge transfer. Short, short contact time, um, very low intimacy. Coaching, somewhat middle, proximity, middle, you know, intimacy. Uh, I'm helping you in a skill. Mentoring, proximity is questionable, but intimacy is high. Discipleship, on the other hand, high proximity, high intimacy, whole person, like mentoring. So I, for me, I've, I've, I've uh, more or less concluded that I'll use discipleship in the context of not yet believer, very interested to following Christ, walking with them to the point where they make a full surrender and then helping them as a young believer. Is that three months? Is that three years? Not sure. We can have a dialogue about that. But, but let's disciple them. It, once, they can, once they move from milk to meat, I don't think I'm going to call them a disciple anymore. We're probably mentors, mentees, and potentially even peer mentoring. Okay? So that's how I would distinguish personally uh, discipleship and mentoring today. I might change my mind a month from now. Um, okay, I'll keep going. Any other questions? It's good? Okay. So, I'm going to ask George and Lo if you could come up and, you know, a minute, minute and a half, just reflect back on your own journey around this table. What has helped you you know, what has been really challenging um, and, and some of your biggest takeaways or benefits? Thanks, John. Uh, good evening, church. So I'll just be brief. I think when I was a student here, I moved way more from the principle of um, accountability structure where there'd be one person that I trust and build a relationship with in church that's more a friend. And so what happened, what I, I had a seat there where every week or two weeks we would chat on specific things which was focused on accountability. And as I got older through the years in church and, and you know, grown in church, I started to realize like a framework like this where you appoint someone or ask someone to fulfill a specific role, it's almost in a sense migrating that um, you know, accountability into broadening it up your life, but also to receive, you know, from a different group of people. And, um, and only recently, I think John mentioned this to me, I think a few months ago, and I'm still in the process of filling in those seats, but obviously I have informally someone in a seat of each one of those roles. But maybe from a practical thing, uh, John, where where I think um, where this is critical is to, you know, it's easy to look at this and think, no, I've got this, I've got this in my life, I can quickly put someone there, but then the question is, do you really give those people the authority to speak into your life? You know, and that's the challenge, and, and for me, I've got, a, uh, you know, four or five inner circle friends, and if I make a big decision, I always consult them. I mean, I would never make a big decision that would influence me, my family, or people around me without talking to, to two or three of them, and then I've got specific roles of people in their coach and mentor that I'll also contact 
to get that support. But I think the big challenge for all of us is we're so individualistic that what if someone in one of those seats tells you, no, you're making a mistake? Don't do that. And, and maybe this is a short testimony. I would not have married the person I married, my wife Lene, if I didn't have someone in one of those seats that after many years, multiple times told me, the person that was before I, I met my wife, I dated someone and that person continually said to me, I love you very much. And when I spoke to that person about my relationship, he said, I've prayed for you, but I don't think this is the right direction. You know, and then in those, you know, times, it's very tough to listen and to appreciate because you, you think that person doesn't understand. You try and tell them. But if I look back now, I actually gave that person the authority and the, you know, and, and that person gave it to me, the straight answer. And so maybe just a final comment. You don't want just yes men or women on that list. And you need people specifically that you trust over time. And, and that's very important because otherwise you'll just go, you know, sometimes we do this. We already have the answer in our heads. We're going to do something. And then you just want someone to you know, tell you what you want to hear and then do your own thing. And that's not true accountability. So for me, this is just a framework we can really think about and then place someone there. But it requires quite humility to, to actually say to someone, I'm approaching you. Whatever you tell me, I'm going to take to heart. Not necessarily do exactly what they say because sometimes someone will tell you conflicting things. But then the group there as a table will then help you to make better decisions. But ultimately it needs to be in intimacy and in relationship. George. Thanks, Lo. Um, I think, yeah, this is something that I, I believe God has been speaking to us as a church about um, for quite a while now. And, and John mentioned it in the in the at the young adult service, but if we want to grow, we have to grow on purpose. We're not going to grow by standing still. Um, and it's the Romans 12 scripture that says that, um, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind in Christ Jesus. And if we are passive about our relationships and the people around us, we are going to be conformed into the pattern of this world. We're going to become turkeys and not eagles, as John put it. And this is probably the most challenging thing for me that I realized is that because I have a pastoral role in church and a leadership role um, in, in many aspects of my life, a lot of people stopped asking me the hard questions. They stopped coming to me and challenging me on the way that I live my life. And it's not only spiritual. It's about my relationship with my wife, my relationship with finances, my relationship with the poor around me. And I realized that I stopped growing in Christ because I wasn't intentional about it. And this is where this came in handy, like not in handy, this changed my life, um, is that I was intentional about putting certain people in certain seats that started asking me difficult questions about my finances, about my marriage, about my spiritual life that, you know, I opened up, as Lo said, like I gave people the space to ask me the, the difficult questions. And I realized that, well, like I was really just being, just floating downstream um, being conformed to the pattern of this world in my thinking and my talking and my feeling the way that I did life until I made that shift. And I said, okay, I need to be intentional about my growth in Jesus. So I need to put people, I need to have a mentor because I have a lot of people that speak into my life, but I didn't have someone who I could go to and say like, okay, week by week, please just throw into, you know, into my life. And that 
just change things dramatically, dramatically, drastically, <laughs> Dram dramatically and drastically, created a new word, hashtag dramatically. Um, and I think, and I think um, just maybe a, a comment on, on the inner circle um, to, to fill in with low. Um, I think that is uh, so, so crucial, John, your testimony that you've shared as well of, of when you guys decided to, or you had to make a decision whether to move or not with your visa things, and you sat down with a group of people, your table of influence, your table of support, and said, it's too emotional, this, this, it's a hard decision for us to make. You go pray and come back and tell us, and we do what you say. And to allow that level of intimacy with the people in your, in your table of support, with your inner circle, to say, you have access to every area of my life so that I can become like Jesus, is scary. It's very scary, but it's so fruitful. So, so fruitful. So I want to encourage you guys, just from my life, don't think that just by coming to church and maybe even going to a small group, you're going to grow. You need to decide to grow in Christ. And this is a, an amazing tool in your life to, to put people there that you grow into who God has called you to be. Amen. Man, you guys killed it. <laughs> yes, let me... <clears throat> Let me conclude with a couple of reflections, and then I'm going to let you discuss this. Take a picture of this. Um, if you need to come closer, we'll sh share the slides with you if you want it. But let me say this. Just because you fill the table doesn't mean you'll be fine. Okay? Filling the table just means you have a better chance of being better than not fine. <laughs> okay? Because you still got to do all the be open, be humble, be teachable, receive, you know, uh, iron sharpens iron. So there's still all of that. So don't do this as an exercise. Put names on the table. If you do fill the table, it also means you'll be surrounded by people, hopefully, that have your best interests at heart because you would have prayerfully considered them and invited them to be a part of your table. I will also suggest to you that Look for the relational low-hanging fruit. What does this mean? It means don't immediately after this service, everyone run to George and see us and say, can you be on my table? Okay? Don't go to Andy Stanley or Louis Giglio or write them an email to say, you need to join my table. You know, God spoke to me. Like how you tell a girl that she's supposed to be your wife because God spoke to you. So look at the obvious people around you. Okay, the people maybe that have always been there, your opa, right? your uncle, your Sunday school teacher, you know, that person that has been praying for you, has been for you, and invite them onto that table. They're there. You just never put them around the table in an intentional way. Now you're saying, I want to open it up further. Please step in as I want to step into your life too. Uh, don't look for the most in-demand person, okay? And I also will suggest to you that you might need to train them if they don't know what to do. So if you say, can you be my mentor? And they say, what do you mean? You say, here, is, here are the questions I want you to ask me every time I see you. And I would like to see you once a month, okay? You start with this question, mentor. Ask me about my relationship with God. Then ask me about my relationship with my, with my wife. Then ask me about my calling and how I'm aligning to it. Then ask me about whether... What, what temptations I'm facing right now and what I'm doing about it. Then ask me about um, you know, any conflict situations that I need to address. 
Then ask me if I've lied to you at all so far. <laughs> okay? That's how you train your mentor. Okay? Train them how to serve you. Um, and, and there is one section here called the family. Now, if your family is a bit in the creative space, creative, interesting, non-conventional, okay, uh, and you're not sure if you can trust your family to sit at the table for many, many reasons, it's okay. Don't push it. Don't force it. And there is also one seat that isn't written there. It's called the spiritual leader. So you might think, okay, where does my small group leader fit here? Where does my church pastor fit here? So perhaps you'll have, you know, if you belong to a community like this, we, we do have a, a spiritual leadership structure that we are submitted to. So then you can also put that there. Okay? So those are a couple of uh, remarks that I will make related to this. So if you could put up the slide on the discussion... Let's give you about three, four minutes, maybe in small groups of three people, just to discuss which seats do you have occupied, which ones need to be occupied, and then let's have a time where we also invite you forward. <clears throat> For some of you, you've been tremendously hurt by somebody. Tremendous offense. And now you hear something like this and you think to yourself, oh, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to open wider this door or window into my life. I've been hurt too badly. Maybe I'll go the alone path, not the together path. And you know you need to deal with that, at least to, to give it to God, at least to come and weep before Him, at least to come and acknowledge it. Then maybe you come to the front. Maybe others, you, you are in a community right now, but you're saying, okay, I hear this call to action. I, I want to commit myself to it. And I know that left to my will, I'll probably fail. So Lord, uh, come help me. Okay? You are helping me, but, but I want to be intentional and in a step of faith, step into this, lean into this. Then you also come forward maybe on this side. And uh, whoever else will follow up from me, you can also add to that uh, as the Lord leads you. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.